Hello and welcome to Under the Skin from Under, well, from Luminary and from Under My Mind or sort of within it. This week I spoke to Dr. John Hagelin. John Hagelin's a quantum physicist, he's a doctor of course, a public policy expert, president of the David Lynch Foundation, chair of the Centre for Leadership Performance. He's amazing, actually. For the past 25 years, he's been leading Earth scientific investigation at the foundations of human consciousness and is one of the world's preeminent researchers on the effects of meditation on brain development and the use of meditation to address critical problems in the field of education, rehabilitation, crime, social violence, and post-traumatic stress. Now, I've known him a long while. John, what I like about John Hagelin is a quantum physicist. He's worked at CERN. CERN, like where they're doing that. They're colliding hydrons down there, baby. They're colliding them. They're getting one hydron and another one and they're smashing them together. And he, from all his knowledge of quantum physics, he's talking about the origin of consciousness and his big theory that consciousness is the origin of all things. Well, Maharishi Maharishi Yogi, his teacher, came up with that, of course. In fact, you know, it's in all religions, really, somewhere or another. But hearing it from this, like from a legit Harvard-educated, CERN acolyte, university-running quantum physicist is fascinating indeed. I think you're going to love this podcast here's some comments from our uh, podcast with radhanat swami reading 6165 radhanat swami being a great teacher and a leader in the krishna consciousness movement i really enjoyed listening to your podcast said reading 6165 with swami radhanat okay it was very up if he's changed the order of the words fine it was very uplifting it's made it's made me inspired to search for a satsang here in the uk while visiting immense gratitude thank you mate critical mass goes i love the way radnat swami speaks he has such kind intent and calming influence yeah he's absolutely wonderful listen if you want to sign up to my um email list do at russellbrand.com you'll hear some interesting stuff on there you get some unique offers for online shows live shows even spiritual retreats as we pull together a magnificent community of enlightened and awakened people to create the glorious utopias that are being born right now out of the destruction we see before our eyes. Let's get into this podcast with John Hagelin and hear an interesting perspective on quantum physics, the unified field and the, and the nature of consciousness. Get into it. Trying to achieve equality with the annihilation of category is not no, a successful that, route. Yes, that's, that's, that's exactly right. We're in this era where it turns out we were never the boss. It doesn't look like an ideology. What's beneath the surface of people we admire, of the ideas that define our time, the history we are told? And welcome to Russell Brand Under the Skin. John Hagelin, thank you so much for joining me on Under the Skin. Great to be with you, Russell, as always. We've known each other a good many years now, and people might want to jump onto YouTube and look at one of our on-stage conversations, which was rather ribald and fun i recall and i've always enjoyed your ability to convey quite complex information in uh, a manner which is easy for me to understand appreciate that you always bring out the best in people certainly the most enthusiastic and humor in people who don't normally have any like myself don't be daft you're a very humorous man now i was i was um, reminded that i needed to speak to you because i was reading a book to which you contribute quite heavily that's come out recently the name of which escapes me but it's about sort of world peace transcendence and using meditation to achieve diplomatic peace and talks like at some length about the studies and efficacy of transcendental meditation not only on an individual level but on a social level now in in this 
peculiar time of flux and transition. What do you think is the uh, the importance of meditation, and 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 uh, is there any increase in its in the potential benefits of transcendental meditation? It's always important to be familiar with your inner self, to be anchored in your inner self, because the inner self is always blissful, contented, expanded. It's the deepest reality within us. It's what we call the self or the subject, the very consciousness within us. And that's the one thing in life that we always have. It's the bedrock of what we are. And yet it's the only thing in life you rarely pay attention to because we're always aware of what's on our plate, what's coming next. That's the nature of what it means to be awake, always seeing, observing, responding to something. But behind all that is the consciousness itself that makes us awake. And that thing, when you talk about it that way, is so abstract, you wonder, well, what is it? Or even does it exist? But it does. And with meditation, by transcending, you basically allow the mind to go within and you sort of leave behind all the outer activity and turmoil and you experience consciousness itself, by itself. And you have this aha experience that, hey, I'm still here, even if everything else goes away. And that thing that is still there, our consciousness, our innermost self, is naturally contented and really enormously expanded. It is a reality within us which is, frankly, more interesting than everything on the outside. So having a taste of that inner silence and getting anchored in that inner silence, increasingly with regular experience, it anchors us all at a time when we need an anchor. And it brings inner satisfaction at a time that there's not a whole lot of outer satisfaction. In fact, there's a lot of out of fear and tension and racial division and politics that's absolutely mad. So to have that, that inner strength and stability is important. And also when you have that experience, one last point, you recognize that that inner self, that inner expanded, pure essence, pure being is the same essentially as the inner self of everybody else which means you start to see more the unity of life and the unity of humanity. You're not as caught up in the outer boundaries of the person, of the body, of the color of the skin, of the beliefs. That's there, but it's really not as important as the core humanity, the core consciousness within. So the more we're anchored in that, the more we can survive turmoil, division, and stress on the outside. How could this essential self be free from the evolved requirements to pursue an objective, even if it's the most basic objectives of our survival? How could something at our essence be continually content and blissful when the experience of being a human from an animal and from a material perspective is so fraught with the fulfillment of objectives. How could those things have simultaneously evolved and what does it suggest about the relationship and uh, precedence of those two phenomena if there is this realm of inner contentedness when so much of active experience is about the overcoming, confronting obstacles, conflicts, etc.? That is an unusually deep question, probably the deepest I've ever experienced on any kind of an interview. Um, it parallels nature itself. You could ask a similar question. How did this constantly changing universe with a changing ecosystem, with millions of species coming into birth every day and probably millions of microspecies dying off every day, 
and new planets and supernovas and new solar systems forming. New... It's constant change, but at the foundation of it all is one non-changing reality. Einstein sensed it, and he set about to discover this unified field, the core unity of life at the basis of all the surface, diversity and complexity, and he got pretty far, but he didn't finish the job. But in these last uh, couple of decades, especially since what's called the second superstring revolution, which I'm sure swept the streets of England, this second superstring revolution. It was really like punk. <laughs> it's right. It really established the reality of this core field of pure being that gave, gave rise to the fundamental particles and forces. And from there, you have atoms and molecules and people and planets and galaxies. So there is a unity at the basis of it all. And that unity, what physicists call the unified field, this sort of ocean of pure existence, which was there before the universe emerged 13 billion years ago, and will be there when our universe ceases to be. Out of that core pure existence comes the unified field. That field of core existence is a field of consciousness. That's the sort of stunning thing that has come out of the last decades of work, not of everybody, but those who think about these things and research these things have come to that conclusion that that core ocean of reality that gave birth to the universe is nothing other than our own maximally expanded self. That our own pure consciousness is really not separate from the ocean of consciousness at the foundation of the universe. So I guess I could say, yes, it's a huge contrast. It's almost not even commonsensical to think that the surface of life that drives us, the force of evolution that forces us to eat and to capture food or create farms and to go to work so that we could eat and survive on a surface level, all of that emerged step by step through the evolution of species, starting from the original elementary particles to the atoms, to the molecules, to the macromolecules, to the living systems, and all those molecules have to survive. All those primitive organisms had to survive. And we as human beings also have to survive. So we are all driven on the surface to maintain our surface existence. But it's all kind of a, it, it's kind of a cosmic folly. Because even if you lose all of that, fundamentally, our core existence survives. What is there, John, that uh, even if we... Uh only consider the unified field to be a phenomena within the discipline of physics to suggest that it's there that I would be able to understand. Furthermore, what it because I can't see how it'd be anything other than sort of maths, and I'm not dismissing maths, <laughs> but like, a, a, but also, what is there that correlates this unified field with consciousness? H how is it that we m integrate? those two ideas and then into an area which I know um, is um, uh, one of your particular expertise. How do these ideas align with uh, Vedic literature and how do you make that translation and how do you make that translation, those translations stick when people are, I'm sure, always trying to say these are distinct and discrete fields? Uh, how much time do we have? Let me, let me try to take a crack at it. Um, first of all, as you say, this unified field at the basis of the universe that physicists have come to discover, you could say, yes, it's all maths. And in a way, that's correct. 
because we think of reality as material, typically speaking, made of bricks and mortar. Underneath the bricks and mortar is the world of quantum mechanics, the world of fundamental particles. And we talk about them in terms of particles, but really the moment you go from the surface to the molecular, to the atomic and beyond, you have left the realm of matter. That's what quantum mechanics says, and that's what's so hard to wrap your head around, that the surface crust of the universe looks so darn material, we get to think of the universe as material, because our eyes don't see the quantum mechanical. Those levels are just too small for human perception. But the reality is that those deeper levels of quantum mechanics and beyond are really non-material. It is a world of concept. It's a world of pure potentiality. It is indeed a world of mind. So in that sense, mind, consciousness, is more fundamental than matter. This concept of matter, like the tip of an iceberg, appears as a surface crust of reality, which is much more abstract, really, that lives in the realm of mind. So that's a little abstract but to wrap your head around. But fundamentally, the universe is a non-material reality. It is really a world of consciousness. So from that perspective, which comes from quantum mechanics, which is 100 years old, we already know that the depth, the core of reality is really not one of matter, it's one of mind. And from that perspective, to link consciousness at the basis of mind with the unified field at the basis of that so-called matter, which is also essentially mind, is natural. So the argument it holds up on that level. But if you look into the mathematical detailed structure and function of this unified field, the ripples on this ocean of consciousness, the unified field. And then you look at the depth of the mind and how the mind functions on a deep level, how thoughts emerge and how out of those bits of thoughts and alphabet and words and language and concepts emerge. You look at it and it's not just parallel, it's mathematically identical. So, from the physics, you understand mathematically the step-by-step -step emergence of diversity from unity. In the world of consciousness, you can experience step-by-step -step the steps of emergence of abstract consciousness to thought, to physiology. Uh, it, it's a, and that you can either analyze using modern physiology and genetics, or you can look at it from the Vedic, so to speak, tradition of knowledge, which is the oldest tradition of knowledge on earth, and is highly developed science of consciousness. And there, similarly, there's a numerics, there's a, a, an exact mathematical structural emergence of diversity from unity. And you look at the step-by-step -step mathematical emergence of diversity from the unity of consciousness, and you compare that to the step-by-step -step dynamics of emergence of this physical unified field, we call it, into the world of physical matter. And the shocking thing is, those maths are identical. These elaborate geometrical structures of emergence that you can experience in consciousness and verify in this tradition of consciousness called the Vedic knowledge. And the physics picture of how physical reality emerges from the ocean of unity those two elaborate mathematical structures are the same. And that's uh, what the physicists can sink their teeth into. Physicists don't trust semantics or words. They trust the precision of mathematics, geometry, differential geometry, set theory, category theory, those very precise mathematical languages. 
From their perspective, in their own language, quantitative language, you can see the unity of consciousness at its depth in what we call the unified field at the depth of physical creation. Thank you. Uh, this idea of potentiality being equivalent to mind, do you mean that in terms of intelligence or awareness or consciousness? How, how does potentiality, you know, and obviously I have a layman's understanding of quantum physics and he'll be a particularly stupid layman at that, but how does potentiality equate to mind how how can how can we bridge that little gap okay because the mind is is naturally capable of entertaining dualities this or that and you would think that in a physical system like an electron is a very simple physical system you would think that the electron would have to be here or there but not both not if it's one electron that's how physics had been for hundreds of years when you get to quantum mechanics, you need a whole new mathematics, a whole new logic, a whole new language, because in mathematics, you deal with the electron as being both here and here and here and here. It is all those places at once. And that makes the mathematics really complex. It brings in a whole new type of logic. And that type of logic, that type of mathematics is exactly the mathematics of what the mind is naturally capable of. So we can entertain possibilities and probabilities. We can imagine this and that. Um, this is kind of how the, word, the mind works and how the intellect works, is to, be, to begin to discriminate between this and that. That's the natural language of quantum mechanics. The quantum mechanics, I'll put it a different way. Quantum mechanics if you what a what an old-fashioned physicist would say an electron they say it's a little bit of matter tiny little billiard ball of matter with electric charge in quantum mechanics if you ask a quantum physicist what is an electron they would say it's a vector in a mathematical space or they would actually say it's an in, it's a it's a vector in an infinite dimensional hilbert space and you'd argue well wait a second no no that's math what is it really Certainly, it's a tiny grain of matter. They'd have to say, you'd like to think so, but actually not. It is a, it is a vector in a mathematical space. And you could say, well, how can that be? And the world can't be made out of math. It can't be made out of mind. It can't be made out of concept. But it is. Any, any conclusion other than the fact that nature is made up of concept, conceptual reality, doesn't work. And it's been disproven, that theory of, of what's called local reality, of matter as little bits, uh, localized bits. That's been disproven many times uh, through very famous experiments, which have forced us into this quantum world, in which you really have to think of reality as a conceptual reality. Is that the famous experiments like the double slit experiment and things like that? For example, yes, that would be an experiment that shows that one electron shined at a wall or thrown at a wall, which has two holes in it, can go through both both holes simultaneously and those 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 are now called, now called probability waves that wave that we think it was a particle but it's really not or it couldn't go through both holes that probability wave goes through both holes and then when they when the two probabilities emerge on the other side they interact with each other they interfere with each other 
And that shows that an electron is not a thing. It is a essentially a concept, a probability wave, and it behaves like a wave. It behaves like math. It doesn't behave like matter. What does this tell us about the true nature of reality if the uh, the deepest in quote observable levels of reality our traditional understanding of physics begins to unravel how do we map that onto other conventional understandings or uh, scientific uh, theories such as evolution and the uh, 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 and personal awakening like what does that suggest is happening if all phenomena is emerging from a unified field which is ultimately consciousness what is happening as human beings become one would argue could argue increasingly more civilized or advanced certainly in certain disciplines what does that mean what's happening if consciousness is non-local consciousness is absolute what's what what was the agricultural revolution? What is evolution? All right. It, it just first, I'll just say technically the transition between probabilities and the conceptual reality of quantum mechanics and the concrete reality of cannonballs at the classical level is a very tricky and poorly understand transition. Probably the deepest problem in quantum mechanics and physics today is understand exactly how the, the provable reality of quantum mechanics, the provable reality of the fact that we, list, we exist in this all possibilities, conceptual what, coexistence of opposites. How does that really translate into a cannonball hitting a castle? And that transition is, is a bit tricky to understand. But it really essentially has to do with the fact that the um, if you take a quantum particle and you clump enough of them together into big enough clumps of particles that might exist in a, an amoeba, for example, and you embed that amoeba in an environment that includes air and other disturbing factors like light and radiation, that essentially washes out or wipes out or confuses or obscures the quantum mechanical reality and this, this probabilistic reality, this coexistence of many possibilities, it effectively starts to behave classically. So it is a transition from the microscopic and simple to the macroscopic and complex that gives this illusion of an objective and physical reality. But it is an illusion, it's a complex web, and the details of that step-by-step -step illusion transition to what we call classical reality is hard to pin down because the transition itself is illusory. It doesn't really happen. Quantum mechanics is always true. Classical mechanics and classical concepts are only true under certain limited events and circumstances, limited conditions of macroscopic, high temperature compared to absolute zero, and multi multiply complex systems involving trillions and trillions of particles. It's a collective effect. It's a collective mirage. I understand as much as it is possible to understand. It's like, yes, collapsing possibility, collapsing, poss increasingly collapsing possibility until there is an apparent reality. But the apparent reality is rather a, a, uh, a reality of scale, 
rather than absolute truth. I was thinking about the scale of our senses. We live in a human-sized world with this is the uh, that is based on utility. That all of our understanding of objective reality is based on, you know, oh, this is nutritious and that's not nutritious and that is a comfortable environment and that's an uncomfortable environment. It's it increases to be, be almost a shared subjectivity. It's exactly right. It's just, and the amazing thing about the subjectivity is that it is shared um, in a sense that we can all agree that the apple is here uh, or that it tastes sweet. And uh, it's an amazing, I'd say almost um, a labyrinthine conspiracy, you could say, that we have what appears to be such a stable and real vision on the surface when underneath it, it is just a tapestry of limitless possibilities. What happened to you, like from like being a you know like a Harvard physicist to someone working at CERN, like at that hydrogen collider joint, like sort of like a straightforward uh, kind of a straightforward quantum physicist to like someone that has conversations that are citing the Vedas, talking about the nature of consciousness. Did something happen to you that felt like a personal epiphany? Did something happen? to you uniquely what what, what uh, was it? Well, probably everybody has their own interesting story with this regard um i had a motorcycle accident as a senior in high school and i spent my senior year in a body cast and during that senior year i picked up a quantum mechanics book which is not something you normally have access to as a high school student and i was kind of blown away by it because it started to speak immediately of a reality that I, I knew nothing about and nobody else did either. This deeper reality is not familiar to most people, certainly wasn't familiar with me. And to start to get a taste of the fact that reality may be radically different from what I was told by my parents and everybody buys into, every organism, every species more or less buys into, I, I had to pursue it. What happened though was that the mathematics required to pick my way through that book which is really meant for, you know, a college senior. It was really a bit beyond me, and I struggled with it, and it was so abstract. I mean, this stuff's abstract, as you have to admit. And uh, somebody walked into my room at that point and said, he was a TM teacher, said, you want to learn Transcendental Meditation without hesitation, not having heard of it. I said, yes, Uh, and could you tell me a little bit more about what it is? Talking to this person was fascinating because I had curiosities and some deeper, almost esoteric questions that had been occurring to me for years. And I would throw these convoluted and complex metaphysical questions at this person who could answer every question with absolute simplicity and confidence. And in such a, that was such, so self-evidently true, I was almost embarrassed for not having realized myself. I got some confidence in this person. I did learn TM. And uh, two symptoms have changed immediately. One was, I was essentially the body was filled with asphalt from the accident still. And I had a fever that was running for three or four months. And within a day, the fever subsided and I started to sleep better and feel feel better. But what kept me really intrigued was that these books, quantum mechanics, self-taught, were really kind of impenetrable and tiring. And I put them down and I said, it's time to meditate. And I did my 20 minutes at PM and I opened up the same book with sort of refreshed curiosity. 
And then it was, a, instead of dry concepts, it was like opening up a box of C's candies. The concepts became so lucid and so delightful and intriguing. Something that happened to my mind. And basically, I was starting to shift from a very classical mind just because of the experience of meditation, the experience of going within. The mind started becoming fluent and fluid in these deeper, more abstract, more expansive levels. And what made little sense before started making lucid sense today. And that's why mainly I've kept it up. My health's good, so I don't have to meditate for my health. But the lucidity and the ability to think clearly in expansive levels is the primary tool of any research scientist, physicist, or mathematician. So it was gave me an advantage that served me very well there and at Harvard and at Stanford and at CERN. So it's a powerful tool for development of mind. Um, so I think that was what happened. It was the circumstances of the accident, I guess, that caused me to look a little deeper. And what I found when I went deeper was that life is hugely enriched and capabilities are improved. But this preceded Harvard, of course, and CERN. And I wonder if either during that what must have been quite a long journey of like a decade or more, I presume, like there were other events or realizations or did it just feel like a i'm guessing from what you're saying it felt like a further verification of what you'd learned oh it's a good point it started the way i described and so yes um i went to dartmouth after high school and majored in physics and then but i was driven on after that to go to harvard i mean going to graduate school in physics is kind of a crazy thing to do because if you've got that kind of technical aptitude, you should be in computer science and you should be making money. But I wanted to, I really wanted to pursue knowledge. So I went for my graduate studies there. And all along, although the physics was not yet where it is today, I had a sense for this underlying unity. Then, while my senior year, I studied under a couple of Nobel laureates. And they were working on the unified field theory. They got the Nobel Prize for discovering that the force of electromagnetism and the force of radioactivity were fundamentally the same if you look at it from a deeper perspective on a deeper level. So I got caught up. We're moving in the direction of unity. And that resonated with my experience. By the end of Harvard, while I was at CERN in Geneva, then string theory started to emerge, which was a unification of all four forces of nature and all the so-called particles, like the electron, as one universal ocean of existence. And I said, now this is it. Now, they weren't talking about consciousness. They were talking about a unified field of matter. But I, you know, from what I had experienced, knew that there was a unified field of consciousness, and I kind of essentially knew that they were the same. So I pursued the physics further. I started to pursue consciousness more deeply. And while I was at CERN in Geneva, Maharishi Mahesh Yogi, who had a small research university in Switzerland also, Salisbury, I took the journey to participate in a conference there. And I got to start to talk with Maharishi himself and many of the scientists and scholars that surround him about the unified field of consciousness. And it was an electrifying exchange and one that basically just grabbed me. And I've been pursuing that with him and since his passing, uh, quite driven and very close to the ball. Wow, that's uh, that's fascinating. Why, why, John? 
is it do you think that most people in the uh, my assumption is at least that in the, the harvard physics department or at cern are sort of almost a fundamentally atheistic and materialistic and is it because empiricism is the the core of what they do or what, what why is that because i'm sort of reminded of other conversations i've had with sort of astrophysicists or whatever and they would not want to be making this leap in the direction of sort of consciousness preceding matter and the theological connotations of that it's a really good question um one of my thesis advisors at harvard was stephen weinberg nobel laureate and the Weinberg Salam Electroweak Unified Theory. And he's very advanced in his field. He's written superb texts on many subjects like general relativity and quantum mechanics and quantum field theory and so forth. So he's brilliant. He really is. But he's very invested in what he knows. And the physicists are considered the high priests of knowledge of our time. And they don't want to be crossed. They don't want their boat rocked. It's like if you're the king of a kingdom, you don't want somebody else coming up and threatening some new government when you're trying to run your own. So it's very much like that in academics. Academics is competitive. People certainly believe their knowledge is the right knowledge. And when they've reached that level of esteem, you, they don't, don't want to. So I spoke to him. I came up and I said, you know what? There's, there are indications that these deeper levels are really related to the phenomenon we call consciousness the mystery that the neuroscientists are trying to understand. What is consciousness? Where does it come from? How is it created by the brain? Or is it indeed created by the brain? And I said, there's a link between that quest and your quest. And he says, no, no, no. He, he said, and he was stammering and actually very nervous. And he said, if you're right, then I'm wrong. And I'm not wrong. And he ran out of the room. And so he was threatened by not necessarily by discovering or being, and I think he sensed it was true, that was so disturbing, that what he has created, this edifice of knowledge that he's created for himself, might not be the ultimate knowledge, that there might be something missing from it that actually might challenge it. And if I had a time, I would have said, no, what you know isn't wrong. What you know is profound and deep and it's demonstrably correct. It's just not quite complete. There's another angle on it, which will enrich it, and it'll really become a unified field theory. Not just a unified field theory of matter, but a unified field theory of consciousness, a so-called theory of everything. And mm -hmm. so it's a, it's a crazy reluctance based in fear that prevents these high priests of knowledge from looking at their own knowledge afresh because they don't have to change a thing. You just have to understand what it means from the perspective of consciousness. Far be it from me to be derisory about an accomplished Nobel Prize winning physicist, but it's uh, plainly incomplete because if you have a theory that doesn't include the emergence of consciousness, the vehicle or crucible or container, then what 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 do you really have other than, um, you know, some wonderful That is exactly complex. the point. And I think that's exactly what they fear. And that's why the word consciousness is more or less forbidden in these circles. You can't, you can't mention the word. It's like sacrilege to mention it. And here at Maharshi University, we have a physics program. We have a, had a nice doctoral program in physics while there was a lot of public interest in physics. We're not far from what's called Fermilab in Chicago, USA, 
the Fermi National Accelerator Laboratory, which before CERN was the biggest and most powerful in the world. And our students would take a field trip and they would visit CERN and they would tour the facilities and they'd have some a theoretical physicist from CERN, uh, not CERN, excuse me, this is Fermilab, come out and talk to the students and then lay out reality as they see it and ask if there are any questions. This guy who was leading this talk was kind of cocky, saying, we know pretty much everything now. Come on, throw a question at me. Ask me anything. The very first student from Yoharsha University asked was, and where does consciousness come from in this picture? And he just was completely taken aback. He said, consciousness, what's that? And completely lost the confidence of the crowd because what do you mean, what's that? I mean, we have it. We should be able to understand it. And it just wasn't in the picture. And that really the joke about the whole thing was he had been talking about consciousness all the time. He just hadn't made the connection. So it's, you're absolutely right. Without consciousness, your theory is obviously faulty, but the addition of consciousness basically just means that the unified field you've been studying and searching for your whole life is consciousness. End of story. It's really pretty easy. Everything follows from that. What follows from that? What follows from that is that ultimately unified field is all that there is. Everything is made of it. And that being consciousness at its core, you could also say consciousness is all that there is. But the whole mystery of mind and how consciousness emerges, I'll tell you how it emerges within the brain in a sentence or two. It doesn't appear, you could say magically. The reason a rock is not consciousness, not very conscious, obviously, very dull, and a human brain is very conscious, is because well, they're both made of matter, but the and they're both they're both they're both made of classical matter, and the classical matter rests on quantum matter, elementary particles and forces, and both of those emerge from the unified field. The difference between the rock is what's going on at the micro level is irrelevant. It's just the rock's behavior doesn't depend on what the molecules are doing. Whereas the human brain and the brain's behavior depends intimately on what's going on inside every neuron. The brain is a network of neurons and the neurons are at their core are quantum mechanical. The neurons are cells which are not dead. There's a spark of life in every cell and that spark of life in every living cell is, be, is due to quantum processes within the cell. So what happens is the cells are little sparks of life because the cell's behavior depends moment by moment intimately on quantum reality. And then the brain networks all of that quantum process into one network giant conscious phenomenon. It basically channels all these sparks of consciousness into a macroscopic, complex, rich instrument of consciousness. So the difference is the roots of the brain's behavior, the roots of conscious behavior, go deep into the quantum mechanical realm, all the way into the unified field. Whereas while the rock is made of the unified field fundamentally, its macroscopic behavior, which isn't much, doesn't depend intimately on what's going on inside every molecule in the same way. So the organization of the unified field and the particles that emerge from the unified field in a rock is very simple. The organization of the human brain 
of the, you know, the substances of the brain that also emerge from the unified field are networked in a way that they become sensitive to quantum reality, sensitive to quantum mechanical events, and ultimately to the unified field. That's why um, the fundamental difference between Russell and Iraq. Yes, I'm glad that you've observed that there are some. <laughs> so I understand that uh, a, a, the complexity of our neurological structures permits us to be a kind of conduit for this limitlessness, whereas a rock remains incidental and non-expressive of this deep, unified potential complexity. Beautiful point. Beautiful point. Thanks. So how do them, uh, like, I suppose you must be then fascinated not just in uh, Vedic instantiations of these principles that precede the instruments of observation that have been a necessary component of your own understanding of quantum physics, uh, but, but other stratas of wisdom too that talk and beyond talk often sort of paint or convey with music this idea of deep integrated oneness, complexity emerging from unity that could even be sort of observed in the calligraphy of this Sufi-inspired notebook that I'm high, uh, holding or in Celtic painting or like you know, that... The, these themes and ideas seem to be continually expressed. What does does that suggest to you then, uh, uh, John? That it's that some well, presumably it does. That that the, the the people that wrote this ancient literature, or at least wrote down this ancient literature, had access to means of information that are not being attained sensorily. Uh, absolutely, yes. And there are traditions of knowledge, and you'll find traces of it that remain in all the major spiritual traditions and even religious traditions and philosophical traditions today. These schools of thought or religious movements, if they were successful, if they had the drive to grow and spread, were rooted in deep experience. You'd have a sage at the top, or you'd have a... a, a you know, an avatar or, a, you know, a great saint with profound experience. And typically speaking, those saints like Buddha, and they say Jesus and so on, they had not only the experience, but they had, in most cases, techniques for such experience. Like Buddha was a yogi. Buddha, the Buddha practiced um, what we would call today the TM City Program, which is from the Yoga Sutras of Patanjali, which is the core of the tradition of yoga, which is part of the Vedic tradition. He was a yogi and he attained enlightenment. And based on his experience of reality, he naturally magnetically collected people around him. And in those early Buddhist days, there were a variety of techniques to transcend. So Buddha's disciples, he said, there were 50,000 or so people who gained enlightenment through the techniques that were being practiced at that time. Jesus took his disciples and took them aside and taught them, if you looked into the New Testament, how to meditate. And so, um, yes, there have been some people just naturally stumble into it. They have a nervous system that is naturally so pure and developed that they just basically experience someday at one point. They recognize, they realize the in inner silence, inner unboundedness, inner unity. For most of us, it takes a little bit of refinement and practice of the nervous system and techniques like TM, which is kind of prevalent today as the most effective technique for transcending, 
give that direct experience to anybody, essentially. So throughout history, there have been times when these techniques have been prevalent. There are many techniques. Probably TM is the simplest and, according to science at the moment, most effective, widely available such technique. But there are techniques, and throughout times, they kind of come and go. Certain traditions capture it, discover it, hold on to it, practice it. So these different veins of knowledge have existed throughout time. So if you look at them all, they speak different languages. Uh, they have perhaps different conceptual descriptions of ultimately the same thing. But if you look into all these traditions, they are talking about the same thing. You could look at Sufism, look at the Vedic wisdom, Buddhist wisdom, uh, symbology in the Christian tradition from the very early church. You'll see from mathematically, symbolically, they're really talking about the same reality. So yes, it's natural for human beings to have that experience. It just gets more difficult at a time of great demand and high stress when nobody has time to sit and look within. When you described the your early experience of reading quantum physics and the impact of transcendental meditation on your ability to interpret and understand that book, I felt um, that we experience a kind of deliberate ghettoization of consciousness, that we are corralled into, sm uh, into limited aspects of our own awareness, limited, limited objectives, a limited agenda. You are an individual. This is what you are. There's so much that is presumed about what it is to be human. I, I wonder against such... Um, potent and uh, ubiquitous forces how uh, a, a, a global transition might ever occur? Well, that's a deep question. And certainly it's true um, in different societies, different cultures, within different political parties, for example, within a culture, within different religious groups within a culture. There's a set of priorities that emerge different based on different points of view and we become very siloed and uh, within those siloed sectors of society uh, within those very siloed societies North Korea for example yeah they have these very you know specific and unfortunately quite limited quite limited visions of what's important and people are corralled so to speak to pursue certain things and to think in certain ways so how in the world do we take that siloed cultural political reality of the planet and create a global transformation there is one way I mean, certainly we can you know try to keep maintain the peace through negotiations and negotiated settlements to keep people from declaring war on each other although it's not always very effective but there is something we can do deeper than that light the spark of consciousness within Everybody has the spark. Everybody has an ember of a glow. That glow makes us awake. It makes us living, conscious beings. So the ember of consciousness is certainly awake and glowing. But you can make create a flare-up in that ember and really light the flame of consciousness by simply giving the experience of the transcendent. Experiencing the transcendent takes our ember of consciousness through which we see, through which we understand, through which we live. It is what we are, but you can take that ember of consciousness and turn it into a flame, turn it into a torchlight even, because it is there in the brain to 
sustain much more consciousness than we normally experience to bring to bear on our life. You can light that up and then everybody is not only brighter, more alert, there's more unity, there's more development of wholeness and love, basically, that just seeing the unity in everyone and everything. That happens from within. And once you start to enliven unity from within, people just don't wake up in the morning with an impulse to go bomb one's neighbor or one's neighboring country. That the kind of violent behavior is born of narrow-minded nationalism and extreme narrowness of vision and self-centeredness that allows you to pursue your odds at any cost and ignore and destroy the benefit of others, the lives of others. So that kind of behavior that creates havoc throughout the world and in every country is a result of extremely cramped human vision, born of stress and born of lack of experience of the expansion of the inner contentment and by igniting the ball of consciousness within. So fortunately, with a neutral technique, I'm going to say light TM, because there certainly might be others. If you could just, in a religiously neutral way, which is, of course, the way always TM is taught, that's why we can teach it in the public schools. That's why it's catching fire in the public schools. You can teach it within the military, which is a very Christian organization in the United States, and not create a conflict with their own religion or beliefs. So if we can innocuously give people the experience of unbounded awareness and light the consciousness within, we'll see more unity in our world. We'll see less chaos, less craziness, and more generosity, more love, more ability and desire to get along with each other. If we don't deal with this at its base, and the, the ultimate problem is not enough consciousness, lack of consciousness, narrowness of consciousness, as opposed to expanded awareness, which is what the brain was designed to have. If it's that's the hardware we're given, the right software will utilize that hardware more fully and we'll have an expanded consciousness. We'll have a peaceful world. Getting there, I'm satisfied that in my, I used to say short life, and now I have to say my long life, uh, it, we've made significant progress, I think. And I think while I'm still here in this on this planet, we'll start to see that transition to a consciousness-based world instead of a highly siloed and extremely narrow and materialistic-based world. More people must meditate, more people must awaken, the more people that awaken, the, the sort of almost the frequency of the human interaction will alter. How, how do you... Look, given that the sort of I don't want to use this language because like I know it's important to you for transcendental meditation to not be mired in sort of religious uh, language or I I imagery. But like Maharishi Mahesh Yogi, essentially a prophet of a particular way of uh, uh, of you know, transcendental meditation and world peace and, and certainly benign, benevolent, beneficial ideas. Um, incredible cultural impact that he had in the 60s, the Beatles being sort of highly visible devotees for a time. Like, if that time there 
didn't serve to provide a sort of transition, though, of course, it's recognised that much of the cultural mobility that came about in the 60s is a result of that fusion of Eastern and Western culture, epitomised by those relationships, I would say. Um, What hope do we have now when, you know, like when when there are such, when, like, whether you're looking at it from the left of the spectrum or the right of the spectrum, no one is arguing about this is a materialist world and we want our ideals to win, that no one's saying let's dismantle nationalism as an idea. Let's look at totally different systems of governance. How do you maintain optimism? Okay, it's a really good question. I've struggled with, you know, Marshi Mashyogi was, you know, not, he himself was, in a sense, discounting his own personal importance, saying, I'm not meant to be your guru. I'm simply meant to provide you with a technique to go within and discover truth within you. So he didn't want that role, but he had it naturally because he was so charismatic and he was so moving to be around. You know, people could be moved to tears just to hear him speak sometimes because he was so um, compelling and magnetic in the softness and truth of what he was saying. So we don't have that kind of figurehead today. And he didn't really think that personally. He didn't feel that was necessary. And the reason he didn't feel it was necessary, and I believe it is fundamentally true, is that um, in time, truth ultimately triumphs. And um, right now, because of science, and science is certainly being challenged, it's being threatened by people who, uh, for whom science and scientific truth doesn't support their ambitions. The whole world of science is being doubted and discounted as certain people try to say, oh, no, no, don't believe in science, believe in me. Don't believe in COVID, which is a Chinese hoax, you know, believe in me. There's that sort of thing. Um, but despite that, those trends always come and go. And what tends to always survive and grow, and sometimes in fits and spurts, but nevertheless, things that actually work, things that actually bring benefits. So, you know, there are many things that come and go, and they're, they're propped up sometimes by advertising money. They are faddish. They are, they, they go viral on the internet. But after a few months, or certainly a few years, if people aren't really getting benefit from something, they'll start looking for something else. When they find a technique that works for transcending, and TM is certainly at the forefront of those, then they stick with it. So just for example, when I was given the oversight for teaching transcendental meditation in the United States, making sure that it was being taught properly, people were getting the benefits, that was about nine years ago actually no, 12, excuse me, uh, there are only 100 people a month learning Transcendental Meditation, and now there are many thousands. And the university that I had, Maharshi International University here in Iowa, you know, our enrollment is going up at about, well, 50% per year. And uh, so what happens is, when people find something that really works, and scientists actually say, Yes, it does lower your blood pressure. Yes, it does increase your IQ. Yes, it does improve your academic performance. Yes, it does improve your your executive functioning and so on. Prevent hypertension, prevent heart disease. And science proves it. People's own experience verifies it. It can only grow. And at this point, apart from a little bit of a COVID vacation that we're on right now where everything is slow, 
it's been growing faster and faster, but not on the basis of a personality, a magnetic personality, which was wonderful, but on the basis of actuality, on the basis of personal experience, word of mouth. So we have a growing, strong foundation, and, I, and it's exponentially growing. The David Lynch Foundation, which you know very well, was founded, whatever, 10 years ago. And there was one school, Maharishi University. Their TM was part of the curriculum in the development of consciousness, the development of the brain's potential. It's actually part of the study. Um, now, there are many, many thousands of schools across uh, the whole world, across the world. Thousands of schools and millions and millions of students in school as part of the school day that are transcendent that are practicing TM. And that's spreading like wildfire. 22 countries in Latin America have incorporated TM into their school day, um, either nationally or on more trial basis in regions of the country and growing fast. So when a flame catches in a fertile field, it will spread. And this flame has caught basically on the basis of the strength of the results. Mm, that's fantastic. Do you have, thank you, do you have any concerns about, uh, you know, like that the sort of new age culture can feel sometimes materialistic or shallow without tradition and the perhaps the challenge of the deracination of TM from its cultural root may mean that it falls prey to that kind of amorphous space that's very easily commodified i sometimes think with mindfulness it's just it's just being used as a tool to make people better lawyers or accountants not to disparage the many great lawyers and accountants in the world but but like you know like participants in an economic system that's predicated on maintaining the the very silos that we've already discussed well many good points in that uh, and certainly there are and have been since I learned TM in 1971, there have been many things that have sort of, for example, at Harvard, there was a faculty member named Herbert Benson, and uh, it was his student, Keith Wallace, who did the original research in the world, research on meditation, period. The research happened to be on transcendental meditation, and he found remarkable benefits from it. And all of a sudden, and that was big news in the world. That was published in Scientific American and all these major, major periodicals and newspapers that meditation actually has a profound physiological effect. So Herbert Benson thought, well, if my student can get this kind of publicity, I can too. And he came up with a kind of a version of transcendental meditation that's superficially similar, but fundamentally different to the point where it didn't really work. But he used his Harvard credentials to write the book, The Relaxation Response. And because he was at Harvard and he had all the funding of Harvard, this became a huge thing. My parents learned it, for example, rather than learning transcendental meditation from me because they liked the Harvard pedigree. And it was big for two, three years and then vanished because, in fact, nobody ever got any results from it. So there's, you're right, though. Um, people will learn and calm and headspace and mindfulness today are big. And but some of them have already peaked and are starting to shrink because they may provide some benefit in some respects, 15 minutes or even one minute sitting with your eyes closed in the middle of a hectic day allows the mind to settle down a little bit, it allows you to kind of collect your thoughts a little bit. It's not harmful, it's helpful, but the benefit is really so small 
in compared to experiencing infinity within that it's apples and oranges. So we have to just stay steady. We have survived so many of these explosions of alternative techniques. People who don't like the idea that TM comes from the East, they want something that came from Harvard. So, you know, there's all of that. Uh, but we're the, we're the ones who continuously grow and uh, we're at the point of, you know, explosive growth. But the thing we have to hold on to, which is we, I feel very responsible for, TM is only going to change the world. A, if people do it, and B, if it's effective. And the effectiveness of the practice depends on its its purity, essentially. It's got a thousands of year old tradition. And if it's taught in just that way, it always works. I can say as a teacher of TM, I've taught many hundreds of people and it has always worked. But it is subtle and um, we're very careful to protect how it is taught and what kind of environment the trained teachers, what kind of training do they have, do they need, should they have. And so we're very careful about it. That's why, you know, there's a course fee for learning TM. Somebody's got to support all that infrastructure, all those teachers. Um, although it's not a fixed fee, it depends upon what you can really easily afford to pay in the United States. It may be different in different countries. So you're right. I think the um, maintaining the purity of the technique itself and an understanding of the tradition from which it comes, because it's a beautiful tradition, with profound understanding of consciousness and profound understanding of the limits of human potential or the lack of limits of human potential, higher states of consciousness beyond waking, pure consciousness, the meditative state, samadhi. Cosmic consciousness, unity consciousness, these are hierarchical developments of human capability that we all have access to. We've all got the CPU to do it, the brain architecture to experience infinity, unity, divine in life. But we have to learn to access that to suck that with the proper software. And that takes a little training and a little time. We're protective of it. That's beautiful, John. Uh, thank you so much for that. That's a, I think we've covered a great deal of territory. And it, as always, I find it very illuminating to listen to you. And it makes me feel more confident about my own practice. I'm meditating a lot at the moment. I'm finding it very beneficial and helpful. And I'm very grateful to you for the work you do. Russell, you are an extraordinary human being and a great, great messenger and a voice to be heard. And thank goodness for this internet technology, which allows people easily to just plug into you. And I certainly encourage them to continue mm -hmm. to do so. Thank you. Thanks, John. I hope everything's going well there in Iowa. Um, I would suggest they check out miu.edu. Check out this university, the only university in the world dedicated primarily to the full development of human potential in higher states of human consciousness. And we just got our 10 year accreditation renewed. You don't have to say that, but, and it was an extraordinarily glowing report from the educating, uh, education officials of the US who approached us skeptically because we're different and and actually the creditors, two of the five actually said at the end of this day, I want to enroll here. Now these, <laughs> these are already lofty professors. They want to start all over and enroll here. So um, it's a hidden gem here in Iowa and uh, calling some attention to miu.edu would, wouldn't hurt. I remember very fondly, I stayed there for three or four weeks writing and 
I remember finding it a very beautiful, rich environment. John, thank you so much. Love to you. Love to you. Stay in touch. I love hearing. I will do. I hope we get to see each other soon. Take care. Take care. care. Bye, John. Well, I hope you enjoyed that. If you did, please sign up to russellbrand.com. I love John Hagelin. Thanks to him and thanks to everyone at the David Lynch Foundation. I love you guys. Check out my YouTube channel for more spiritual videos and clips. And you know how to follow me, don't you? Now, this has been Russell Brand, Under the Skin, only from Luminary. <laughs>